Dialogic Disciple is an invitation to explore discipleship and dialogue with the world as disciples of the Word. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Dialogic Disciple podcast. Uh, we have, uh, as always, with me today, my name is James, by the way, and with me today, as always, is Nick Houston, Nicholas Cage Houston, as I am calling him now. Uh, Nick, how are you doing today? I'm good. Good, good, good. And we have a special guest with us, Reverend Catherine Booth Olson. Hey, hey. Catherine, how are you doing today? I am excited to be with y'all. I've never worn headphones quite like this. I yeah. got a fancy microphone. I feel like I could talk for hours. Oh, Lord, here we go. <laughs> we know you can. Yeah, we know you can. We're so glad that you could join us today. Um, we usually uh, get these conversations started by talking a little bit about our, our guest. Uh, today, I thought we'd just talk about uh, the weather or something. Uh. Well, today, <laughs> November 2nd, yes. it's a cold day with a clear blue sky. Yes, indeed. Uh, you'd be a good weather person for radio. You ever thought about doing that? I might start. <laughs> no, I haven't. Uh, Catherine, if uh, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself. we uh, One of the reasons why we do this is to help the... Uh, you know, to give an avenue for people here at Northside as well as in the larger world to get a, uh, a little glimpse of who serves here and who uh, works here at the Nor- at Northside Church, as well as you know what we, what we all do here, what we how we operate together as a team and all that stuff. But uh, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how did you get to Northside? What is your uh, what's your story? So I found Northside. My first encounter here was a Friday or Saturday night after hours evening of playing a game of sardines with some other seminary students. I went to Candler School of Theology at Emory, and at that time, Northside owned a house uh, just behind the church, and some seminary students lived there who I were friends with, and they had keys to the building, and they invited a whole bunch of wild and crazy theological students to come and do a a game of sardines, which is a game where one person hides and other people are supposed to find them. I remember playing sardines when I was a kid. So it's not hide and seek. It's like hide and seek, it's but it's opposite. where it's where one person hides and everybody goes to try to find that yeah. person. Oh, and then when gotcha. you when you found them, you hide with them. Yeah. So okay. The, so, so the that's is not where the, the sardines last, comes in yeah. because so you're all packed in the right, Yeah. More crowded. So the goal is to find the individual who's hiding and then to join with them in the closet, the bathroom stall. Right. Or if you're the youth director, it's your job to find them before they find their girlfriend or boyfriend. Right, that's right. the uh, so, in the closet or the bathroom in the closet stall. or the bathroom stall. So that say. was that's the first place fir- you look. <laughs> first encounter was Northside Church was hiding um, on a Friday night. Who, who were the who, who were the, you hiding with, yeah, Catherine? Who were the seminary people that um, you were I'm hiding gonna with? I'm going to take a guess, and I'm not confident, but I would imagine it was the Reverend John Hill. Oh yeah, the Reverend that. Jason Snow, <laughs> and the Reverend. Oh, a couple more reverends in the United Methodist Church who may not want to be identified on this We'll podcast. make sure we tag them when we put this up. Yeah, we so, should do that. That'll well, help spread the reach. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Was uh, uh, was Kilgore part of that group? Oh, Billy Kilgore? I do not know if uh I thought Billy he had a connection Kilgore? to Northside Church. So um, he did. He worked at, I believe, the Metro Atlanta Project one summer. Okay, all right. So maybe the Reverend Jason Burnham, maybe the Reverend Nancy Spees. Okay. I mean, there was a number yeah. of folks. So I first came to Northside uh, to play sardines. And then after that, my second encounter was uh, when I was in Singapore. Uh, staying... do, we, do we have a, a Singapore branch? Uh, I was staying at the YMCA. 
above the McDonald's in Singapore for a conference with the World Methodist Evangelism Institute. And the Gil Watson. Oh, here we go. Was also attending this conference, and he was in the McDonald's down below and came to learn that his church was a church where I played sardines. And so I met him in Singapore. That's a, and as you can say, the rest was history. history. There you go. <laughs> so is, sardines in Singapore is how I ended up at- Sardines in Singapore. <laughs> and now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> that sounds like that'd make a great title for a, a Northside memoir, Sardines in Singapore. Mm-hmm. So but probably t- the more factual information as I was graduating from Candler School of Theology as a deacon in the United Methodist Church, we are responsible for finding- our own appointments and partnership with the local church and was looking for a church where I could use my gifts and talents and had met Gil at the McDonald's in Singapore. And the church was looking to do some hiring um, of someone who could help primarily in their children's ministry, but maybe expand a few other opportunities. And there I was, I was commissioned as a deacon and showed up at Northside and 14 years later, I am still here. So that's how you got to Northside. Talk to me a little bit about, talk to us about how you, um, about how you decided to go into the ministry. Sure. So I, uh, as a young child, grew up in a very small Episcopal church. Uh, My dad was raised uh, Episcopalian and my mom was an Air Force kid and went to what was ever on base, wherever she grew up. So uh, was raised in the church. And went to a small, uh, tiny Episcopalian church as a kid and used to drink out of the common cup of red wine every Sunday. Um, And with time, was looking for a church that had a larger youth group and the Methodist church uh, in our neighborhood had a really active youth group. And so in sixth grade, I begged my parents to let me go to MYF because I was that kind of cool kid who was like begging to go to MYF. So got super involved in MYF and took a disciple class as a high school student. That's cool. I also, at the age of about 16, took over the ushers at my small Methodist church because they were not organized in the fashion I thought responsible. That does not surprise me once. Uh, it doesn't surprise me a little that bit. That feels so uh, on brand. You were you were a teenager and you took over the ushering. I did. You there ran were the no ushers. high schoolers who were ushers nor any women. And yet I thought I knew better. <laughs> oh, how pride goes before the fall. I also remember. So was that a formative experience? Yeah. Would you say that, that you... Was that a good introduction to service in the church? <laughs> it was actually a much more gracious and generous experience. Those men were so kind and thankful yeah. for my leadership skills. No doubt, no doubt. Uh, but with that, um, I have two profound kind of moments. One in high school, a spirit-filled woman at the church I grew up at, Marvin United Methodist. Uh, Miss Lila Lulis was the only woman in the church who would raise her hand. She would sit in the choir and raise a hand to glorify God. I used to never know what was happening to her and why she did that. I have a little more understanding now. She stopped me in the hall one evening and said, you're going to be a minister when you grow up. And I said, no, ma'am, I'm not. And she said, yes, you are. And I said, no, actually, I don't like to read that much. And every minister I know has a whole wall of books. And I don't plan to ever do that. And... Now the joke is on me. She was obviously much more aware of what the spirit was already doing. But I do look back on that conversation in the hallway on a, like probably a Wednesday night and go, wow. Did you ever get a chance to, to show her the fruit of her prophecy? Um, I did not. She ended up you know, outrunning us to the father's house, mm-hmm. as we would say, before mm-hmm. I got to that point. But there certainly are a legend of saints who informed and nurtured my faith 
from Sunday school to NYF to, you know, Wesley fellowships along the way that inspired my kind of faith. But I've always loved the church. Like yeah. I love the community. I love the people. Um, I love the activities. Um, church has always felt like home. How have you felt your your call in ministry develop, mature, change uh, throughout your time here at Northside Church? Because Northside's basically been your your church. I mean, this has been the place that you've been since seminary, uh, mostly. So, how would you how do you feel like it's changed or developed or matured or grown? Sure. So, I had a profound experience my senior year of college. Um, was really struggling with what to do. I was finishing a undergrad degree in education. Um, I have a bachelor's of science in education with a focus in special education and speech and language pathology. Oh, that's cool. So I had this uh, teaching degree that I had done no student teaching, so I could not function as a special educator. Um, If I wanted to be a speech pathologist, I'd have to get a master's degree. So I had an undergrad degree that equipped me to do almost nothing um, and was really struggling with what do I do next and had a moment where I can say I heard the voice of God. Okay. um, And... This is what I heard. It was, you can teach people to speak, but if you do not tell them they're loved by me, you've missed what you're supposed to do. Okay. And I said, mm-hmm. what was that? And I heard it again. You can teach people to speak, but if you do not tell them they are loved by me, you've missed what you're supposed to do. And so I spent a couple of weeks calling the wise people in my world, campus ministers and grandmas and pastors mm-hmm. and said, what does that mean? And they're like, well, who are the people who talk about God? Who yeah. Share God's love. Well, that's kind of the full-time vocation ministry. I'd never met a female pastor um, at that time. A lot of really devout lay women and men who were certainly very affirming of women in leadership. Was, that's sort of what led to going, I need a master's degree in something, which how I ended up at Candler and then ended up at Northside. Uh, for me, that kind of clear calling to teach people that they are loved by God. Um, you don't have to work at a church to do that, but for me, that seemed like the most logical vocation to get paid to do that work. And so at Northside, the thing that's probably stood out to me the most is not the message I'm telling, but who is the audience in which I'm telling the message. So I started in children's ministry. So doing a lot of resourcing parents to talk to their kids um, about the love of Christ. And then, you know, some women's ministry and adult discipleship and now a lot of worship planning. And so I think the exciting part for me is to think about all the diverse ways, like, when I started off, you know, here 14 years ago, I never thought one of the ways I'd be talking about the love of God is in a podcast with the two of you. Right. <laughs> right. So uh, thinking about all the creative ways we try to tell people that they are loved by God. Yeah. No, that's great. Um, I don't I don't remember my call being quite like that, but uh, I, obviously everybody's call is different. But the idea that, that if you don't tell people uh, that God loves them, you're you know, you're not doing your job. You're not doing mm-hmm. what you're supposed to be doing. I like that a lot. Um, you're also involved on the district and conference level quite a bit uh, in the Methodist Church. Do you do you feel like talking a little bit about what some of your roles have been in that level and and whether or not you've uh, you felt like it was worth anything? <laughs> sure. I mean, I definitely think it's worth something. I, I think that has been a great joy for me and a reason that Northside has been a really meaningful appointment and place of service because while there's certainly more than enough to do here, the richness of a really diverse staff um, is incredibly powerful in the sense that um, I've appreciated having senior pastors and fellow associate pastors and staff members uh, who who are excellent at what they do. And because they're great at what they do, it gives me some freedom to occasionally do some other things. 
I'm like a solo pastor, and when they're gone, no one's there to care for the flock. Well, here, there's a lot of people caring and tending. And so I have been gifted to serve on two accrediting boards, uh, the District Committee on Ordained Ministry and then the Board of Ordained Ministry. These are two groups of clergy and laity that help discern um, whether someone feels called into the vocation of full-time ministry. And so it's a... That sounds like a, a huge responsibility. It is a huge responsibility. I think for most people, it is often an intimidating environment. For me, it's a really exciting and energizing environment to engage in conversation about theology and call and practice of ministry and leadership and uh, to find out how do we value both the full-time vocational ministry of our laity and to validate that all of us are part of the priesthood of believers, but that there are some who are called and set apart to do the vocation of ministry. And um, what is that credentialing? I mean, we're a part of a denomination that has very kind of strict credentialing to get in. But once you're in, it is hard to get us out. Yeah, Um, Yeah. Our tenuring process is very interesting. Though we could do a whole nother podcast around... The United Methodist Church's understanding of ordination, we, and we we should we should do a podcast sometime. You just know, hey, we've got to work that in. Yeah. Let me go ahead and start calendaring out what yeah. our theological issues are. And what we our... get Catherine to help us with that. I yeah. Oh, that would be oh, a fun I'm one. Sure. <laughs> though one of the things that has been really important i had a conversation just recently with someone about the one of the things i really do value about the united methodist church is that we do not have um while there is kind of a a way that we find to be appropriate that we don't have these clear black and white Mm -hmm. we do not have a creedal theology so there is not any one creed you have to believe in to be a united methodist uh to be a united methodist you have to profess jesus christ as your lord and savior be or have been baptized and promise to uphold the local United Methodist Church with your prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness. And that is it. That's so. Yeah, I mean, if you took that seriously, that's that's a lot, though, right? It's, I mean, it's, Sure, it's that's, a lot. That's, that's I just think yeah. it's... But it's not a particular doctrinal uh, thing that we're, we're, we're looking for. I mean... But I would imagine as a, as when you're going through the ordination process, that, that becomes a little different. There are some clear doctrinal standards, but I do think it's not as formulaic as you think. A lot of times, like, candidates for ministry will say can't you just teach me the answer like tell me what i'm supposed to say and it's like there's some wrong things to say but there's a lot of right yeah. things as united methodist can you was it can you share with us what maybe one experience from that obviously anonymously that was the most problematic like that, what answer did you hear that was the most like oh no you should not be methodist you um, do not understand you, are, you should not be so, in this room right how now. much seminary where did you go to seminary so i think a place a couple places where people get tripped up in the because United Methodist, we end up with a lot of folks who weren't reared Methodist. Yeah. They were reared Baptist or mm-hmm. Presbyterian or Catholic. Yeah, two of them in the room. Um, and so they mm-hmm. come to the Methodist Church because there's something about, often it's not our theology they love. It's our polity or it's yeah. just a local church or a community of faith or a Wesley Foundation. And I think places yeah. where people get tripped up are, um, what is our understanding of the nature of God? Um, mm-hmm. There's some kind of common language around a triune God and a God as love that are important, but there are a lot of other attributes of God that you can talk about and be right. Like God is, you know, providential or God as wrathful, jealous, provisional. No, wrathful and jealous don't tend to work as well unless you talk of God of grace. Uh, 
Is God wrathful and jealous? Yes. Is that your, if you only get like three pages, not where you start. Yeah, that's true. Um, the other place where you get kind of messed up around uh, what is the difference between sin and evil? That's a trick question. It's the same thing. Actually, also oh, well, not I, true. I heard Reverend Olson do a sermon on that one Wednesday night. So. Whoa, you preached on you preached on sin. I did. We Methodists do believe sin exists. I've and never so heard a Methodist e- sermon on sin in my entire life. Sin and evil. Yeah. Uh, that sin is, you know, counter to the will of God, um, and that evil is a condition or a state of being because we live in a broken world. Mm. So, for example, the Lord told me I should make Nick a casserole. I didn't feel like making a casserole, so I didn't do it. That's sin. That's sin, that's but it sin. is not evil. But then Nick goes hungry. That's evil, right? But systemic, yeah. Right? Yeah. Is, is that a good Wait a minute. Evil. Is that systemic evil? Yeah, well. well if I let you I've stay always, hungry, I've if always, I don't bring you food for months. I've always thought of sin as being a condition, a state of being. Evil is like the residue or the result of sin in the world. And then the other one is also a Wesleyan understanding of grace. Yeah. The via salutis. Yeah. Can you talk about prevenient, justifying, and sanctifying grace? One grace, three functions or forms, not three graces. Yeah. That's like, um, that's like talking about grace as though it was a substance though, right? I mean, like you're talking about, like you're talking about the Trinity, right? Like one substance, three persons or personas is what is grace? That's a great question. I mean, grace is not a substance, right? It's greater than all of our sin, James. Yes, it's indeed. But if you talked about evil as being like a residue of sin, you would talk about grace as being the residue of God's love. God's unmerited favor. God's unmerited favor. That is That's a the pretty, definition the textbook, right? Yeah, pretty textbook definition. Do you find that a lot of people have a hard time um, talking about those three different forms that grace takes? Um, I think most of folks who want to be ordained in the Methodist Church can say like, oh yeah, that's justifying Provenient, sanctifying, and then someone will say something like, well, tell me how grace is at work in the sacraments. And they're like, uh, well, and then it gets complicated because they're like, well, it's baptism. Baptism is provenient grace because we baptize babies. (laughs) Communion is sanctifying. And then you're like, no, you don't just get one of them. When you get any of them, you get all of them. It's what you need. Yeah. And then people get... Where is grace at work in communion? Well, it's in the people, and it's in the elements, and it's in the space, and it's wherever God is, and that's at work at all places and at all times. Uh, and I think one of the things that's really important for Methodists is this, because of our notion of free will mm. um, and understanding that God is at work wooing us and inviting us into a relationship long before we ever know it or understand it, and that God's activity precedes any of our action. Yeah. And so in a lot of faith traditions, there's this notion that you choose to be justified and that's your work yeah and that's based on something you've merited or you you get saved yeah um and this notion that god is at work preparing us and wooing us through what we would identify as provenient grace yeah um it's pretty distinct i think in that way okay Earlier today, Catherine, you and I were talking about um, some of the anxiety of uncertainty and about um, a lot how much uncertainty we have right now in the world that we live in. And with the, the pandemic and when that's going to end, when is that going to end? And I thought maybe today we could talk a little bit about 
uh, first of all, talk about that anxiety, but also talk a little bit about what does it mean to be a person of faith and a disciple of Jesus Christ amidst so much uncertainty and anxiety uh, in our in our life. Yesterday, I had the privilege of talking with our seventh grade compromands, um, and we were talking about two really easy to define concepts the holy spirit and the trinity oh yeah I had like absolutely. 25 minutes yes. super simple in yes. 25 minutes yes. 25 minutes to teach these budding minds about you know these two concepts and at some point i paused and i said you know what y'all i'm going to teach you two of the two most valuable words in our christian vocabulary and it's holy mystery mm, mm. and all the kids kind of like those who were willing to have their screens on kind of looked at me and i was like no, seriously, at some point you have to get okay with the fact that like we serve a known God in an unknown world, but there is so much we can't and don't know about God that yeah. it there's so much about this journey of faith and it requires us to really embrace the holy mystery of like saying, I'm in it even if I have no notion yeah. of how it's going to end out. I have to trust the mystery. Yeah, And we are people who do not like mystery we want to get to the end of the book and find right. out what happened and who done it and yeah how it all plays out and we just don't live in the mystery well so just a little bit of a sidebar part of my experience in being involved in the united methodist church since 22 24 um is getting to know different clergy members and as the church moves clergy members you've got a new pastor coming in you've got new associates coming in and you're getting to know different clergy members and you start to develop an understanding of what that clergy members flavor is not the right word but it's the best word i can come like up with style? this minute yeah yeah and i would say holy mystery is certainly a flavor i would use for Catherine. That yeah it's like a theme that's of your ben, that's your ben and jerry flavor is holy is mystery holy mystery yeah <laughs> that is something like and of course, I mean, I'm in a disciple group that Catherine facilitates. Oh, yeah. And so it is neat as you get to know different clergy people, you pick up on what their theme of, maybe theme of ministry. And I think that, I, I appreciate that. I haven't really spent a lot of time thinking about it, but I come from two parents who are scientists. My dad mm. has a PhD in organic chemistry, and my mom is a high school teacher. Uh, her degree is in microbiology and worked wow. in a lab before she uh, stayed home for a while as a stay-at-home mom and then went back to teach in um, high school. So I came from a family of like really clear answers, like yeah. yeses and nos, um, rights and wrongs. Like what does science prove? And kind of went into grad school with no um, or very limited theological vocabulary. I remember yeah. like starting off early on being like, okay, so we're reading this theologian who doesn't agree with that theologian that's maybe affirming scripture or not like why does this all matter and like i was like can't someone just give us the answer and i remember someone early on being like there is there aren't a lot there of right no answers answer, it's yeah. the process of faith and just being like can't someone just tell me if this is sin or right, evil yeah. or mm -hmm. just or true or right or holy or yeah. wise and and so i think that's something i've had to really wrestle with becoming yeah. comfortable with living in the mystery and so maybe I repeat it because I need to be reminded that it is an okay place to be. I, I think that that's probably a helpful way to enter into any kind of discussion about God, that if you keep it at the forefront of your mind that God is a mystery and that if you ever get to a point where you understand God, you're not really talking about God anymore. You're talking about somebody's idea of God. But um, I, I, I would imagine, though, that it would 
and maybe this is um maybe this is how you started in seminary um but if you start with the idea that that there is no answer and that what you're trying to do is 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 to gain a relationship with somebody who is is at the end of the day absolutely unknowable and except for how God wants to reveal God's self to us um that 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 would be a more fruitful approach than saying all right I'm going to figure this out right and I'm going to I'm going to know the answer to the trinity and who God is and what God looks like um at the end well, I think that becomes so important because so much of what modern day religious experiences is, is academic yeah. and intellectual. It's yeah. like, can you quote the Bible? Do you know scripture? Well, what does Romans say versus Corinthians versus John versus, but to be able to say like the goal and for me, for how I understand a life as a disciple, yeah, it's not um, perfect knowledge of God. Yeah, It is faithfulness to the relationship of being willing to explore this known and unknown God that we know God is love and we know God is just, but we know God is gracious and we know God gets angry, but God is compassionate. Like the goal is faithfulness yeah. to the process. They're, they're, the goal is the process itself, not the end. Yeah. Nick, have you, what do you, what do you, have you put much thought into this mystery, this, uh, this understanding of God, how do you how do you approach trying to learn about God, know, know God? Well, it does sound like an interesting paradox to say I'm going to set out with my life, um, I want to know God. But then to say, on the other hand, God is unknowable. Yeah. Um, I mean, certainly, you know, being approached by the question of somebody who's not a believer and asking, you know, yeah. is God knowable? <laughs> and I want to say, yes, God is knowable. Mm-hmm. And Jay is saying, well, God's not knowable. Yeah. And I think it does depend to what exactly you mean by knowable. Right. Um, because certainly I would not, I, I wouldn't be on the path if I didn't feel like there was some understanding to be gained through it. Absolutely. Like you, you, you get up every morning and you take up your cross because you do feel like you know God. Yeah. Um, well, Nick, I think that's one thing I do appreciate that you often invite us back to in the conversation is while there is so much we don't know and cannot understand, there are certain things that are that are apparent, like that God is creator. And you are regularly saying there are certain things I do want my kids to know that are somewhat concrete mm-hmm. so they have enough foundation so they can develop a vocabulary to then ask the question. Yeah, yeah that's very good. Because I do I appreciate being a part of a theological tradition that invites the question to say we can be people of good faith and maybe not always define it exactly the same yeah and it doesn't mean that you don't have questions about how you develop that faith right. i think in terms of how do i experience holy mystery certainly early on asking my parents questions wanting to understand and them basically having to say well if you knew that you would be god right yeah you know that's the only way you get to that level of understanding um and then to be experiencing that with my own kids at this point um who are asking me questions that I'm like, dude, that's something you're going to have to get comfortable not having an answer about. Yeah. And, and I haven't got the vocabulary to say it's a holy mystery. Uh-huh. Have you been able to say so that that's coming them? home with me now? Have you been able to say to them that that's just something that you're not, you're going to have to be comfortable with not knowing? Or is it, 
or have you skirted around? I that? haven't put it that bluntly yet. Yeah, okay. <laughs> but yeah. I think that's what no, most of us are afraid of hearing when it comes to the pandemic. We don't know. That's a holy mystery. Well, there's certain things we know, but there's a yeah. lot we don't know. What about the outcome we, of the election? Sure, it's not an unholy mystery. <laughs> you know, but I think that's, we live in, um the, what is it, the age of intellect where we want mm-hmm. clear and right answers yeah. and we want true news and not fake news and we want quick answers like we want google to be all knowing and all wise and all defining and if we could if we just knew how long we had to endure if suffering was just defined on a calendar we could make it yeah you know we could do 14 days without carbs if it's only 14 days and i love doing workouts with a countdown clock so i know how much more i've got to do that was uh that was one of the things at, at the beginning of this whole thing uh when we were we were so um we were so quick to try to put a date on like when we're coming back or when this is going to be over. And uh, I think that itself caused a great deal of anxiety with us on staff, but also just in the community. I, I have a friend who is a pastor of a big church in Alexandria, uh, Virginia, and they've already said, we're not coming back to the fall of 2022. And they said that not 22? because two. Mm-hmm, and they said that because not because, um, they think it's going to last that long, but just to have the date set and be like, we don't ask that question anymore. We don't have to yeah. worry about that. And they have a huge online presence, so it's a little easier for them than I think most churches. But just to have that set and be like, it's out there, it's done. Mm-hmm. We're not going to keep asking that question and keep having to push things back or whatever. Um, I And he said it, we did that to alleviate anxiety. And we have this known thing now. We know when we're coming back. I get that. I sometimes feel like my chief role is question answerer. Yeah. And that pandemic question of when are we, you know, when are we coming back? What's going to happen next? What, when is this going to be over? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I don't have that one in my back. So I see, I see a, a little bit of wisdom in saying, you know what? We'll be back 2022. Right, right. I will say one of the like small, but very profound lessons I had to learn in life was not always where I was going, but knowing the next faithful step. Mm. What is just the very yeah. next faithful step for today? That's good. Like, I don't know maybe what I need to do for tomorrow or next week or next year, but like, I need to like continue to abide with the things that I know true today. Like, give generously, love passionately, like, mm-hmm. read scripture, show up for worship, yeah. be engaged in missions, pray. Like, you know, like all the things, like, those things haven't changed. So, mm-hmm. like, I don't know what to plan for vacation next year. And I don't know where, to, like, what size clothes I'm going to wear in three and a half years. Like, but yeah. what do I know about today? Well, what's the, just the one next faithful step? And I think some people can live in the, like, liminal spaces, those unknown spaces yeah. better than others because they just trust that God is with them. But I'm like, I want the calendar to say right. this is going to be happening in December and that's June and yeah, you know, but that takes some active. I, I think it takes active intention for me to trust that God has taken care of it. Yeah, that there there are certainly days where I wake up in the morning and think about what's going to happen next, what's going to happen in two weeks, what do I have to do to prepare for what's going to happen in a month? You know, this is coming up in a certain and and it it does take me sometimes having to stop and take a breath and say. It's all going to get here and I need to be ready for it, but yeah. I don't need to worry about it. Like right. how splitting that hair between what's good preparation and planning versus anxiety. 
we have we, we're talking about knowing God here and and the anxiety of not knowing certain things, but there's a couple different forms of knowledge, right? And I think we have shifted what knowledge means in the Bible um, to what we like, Catherine, as you were pointing out, as we in our world today think of knowledge as being an intellectual thing. It's about facts. It's about information. It's about reading and learning and and knowing certain ideas. And faith is taken on that that character, right? Where we think to believe rightly means that you quote the Apostles' Creed. And as long as you know all the facts in your head, know all the facts that are on the Apostles' Creed, then you believe rightly. But knowledge in the Scripture is more often about knowing someone relationally and intimately even. And that's the kind of knowledge of God that we can have and that is readily available to us, right? And that's the kind of knowledge that breeds the faith. And I think one of my questions for you all would be is in the dark of night, and the still and quiet of the day, when the anxiety feels overwhelming, like when there are more questions than answers, when your kids are begging you, like, when can we return to fill in the blank? When is the Wi-Fi going to come back on? Oh, my gosh, yes. You know, whether it's <laughs> the Wi-Fi <laughs> coming back on, when can we, you know, go to a concert again? When, you know, will there be peace on Earth? Mm-hmm. Um I would be curious, so what are some of the strategies that when we all start to spiral into the overwhelmingness of the unknown that help connect you back to the relationship or that make you feel okay with the mystery? Yeah. Like, wow. What are those, like, what are the, are there certain things that you do to like stop the spinning? You're like, this is my hard stop. I mean, pr- I mean, prayer is one of the things that, um, uh, that obviously I think is the first thing you go to, but also, I mean, I'll call friends and, and unload some of the anxiety i think a lot of times for me anyway i i don't often talk about what i'm anxious about i don't often i try hard not to even demonstrate to the world that i am anxious about something but it builds up builds up builds up to a point where it just turns me into a completely different person and i become well, you guys i mean you guys have seen it, i become short i become very much not in the mood to play games or have jokes or whatever. And that's not usually me. So you can tell whenever it's reached a breaking point for me. Uh, and then I have to unload it. I have to unload it uh, somewhere or else it, it crushes me like a black hole. So this is a place where maybe we should do a video podcast. So you could see Catherine and I just nodding our heads. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, yeah. I think we all, we embody that anxiety. Mm-hmm. Like the anxiety is not outside of us. It is literally within us. And yeah. so when we start spinning, and thought and heart and your stomach, I do think we all need those go-to stops. Like yeah. in, whether it's prayer or friend, Nick, I'd be curious what that is for you. Yeah. Uh, so I, this is, this is funny, particularly this weekend. I just was kind of spun up with stuff. What do I have to get done at work? What do I need to get done at home? What's coming up next? Yeah. We've got an election and we've got a pandemic and I don't know when things are going to end. And there was something for me that just needed and I'm not saying this is healthy or the appropriate way to deal with it. But what I did was I spent hours picking pecans up out of the yard. You mean pecans? I mean pecans. Okay, pecans. Because that's what grandmama called them. And I'm just going with that. As long as they end up in a pie or some brittle, I don't care what you yeah, call them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> throw in a few chocolate chips and they're even better. So, yeah, I've got these. So uh, was that a good distraction? Is that what you're saying? I think for me it was it was cathartic. I mean, yeah. it was a distraction, but it also was to stop the wheels from spinning. Yeah. To have my hands on a task that I felt like needed to be done. Yeah. Um, and it is repetitive enough. It's one of those things like in my sleep I was still picking them up. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it gave me the opportunity to clear my mind okay, yeah. and to pay attention 
to some other things going on around to it was good for me. Yeah. I think um, returning to nature is huge for so many people. Yeah. yeah. Uh, to get outside and to recognize we do not control the weather. Yeah. I mean, one of the few things we have little to no control over is the weather. But to get back in nature and to say, like, one of the things we do know about God is God is creator. And so to watch the sunrise or the sunset or to pick up pecan, pecans, to yeah. breathe in a deep breath, to feel the fierceness of the wind blow or the gentleness of the breeze to say like, I didn't create this world and I didn't create my life. So I'm going to have to trust that the God who did create all of this can also handle yeah whatever tomorrow holds. And how easily, how easily I don't get out in nature a lot. So I don't have a lot of room to speak here, but every once in a while I look out a window and you can see how uh, the world just goes on with, regardless of what my concerns or even what national concerns or even humanity concerns mm-hmm. might be, the world just goes on without any concern or care really uh, for all the things that are, that are packed up in my head and blocking my heart. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, absolutely. Well, and for me, particularly harvesting this nut off the ground these trees are in my yard and i did nothing i didn't plant them i don't tend them i haven't watered them i haven't fertilized them and yet it yields this ridiculous bounty abundance i mean the god's provision is amazing yeah that is isn't that also true with scripture like we didn't hear it I mean, we didn't conceive of it. We didn't hear it. We didn't write it down. We didn't canonize it. We didn't translate it. Yeah. We didn't bind it. We might have bought it. I mean. <laughs> downloaded it. Downloaded yeah. it. But I mean, I think of so many things that we have just been gifted. Yeah. Um, and I do wonder, I mean, that would be a question I'd be asking the listener. Like, can you think of one or two or three or ten things that when life stop, starts spinning, that you can kind of grab hold to. Like, what are your anchors? Yeah. Prayer, nature. Bible yeah. study, church. Bible study, worship. Worship. Um, you know, or calling a friend and mm-hmm. saying, like, we, we don't do this in isolation. We do it in community. Turning off the news. Like, sometimes you have to silence yeah. the voices. Oh, that, yeah. you know, that's another really good one. There are some evenings, you know, I, I feel sometimes a compulsion to turn the TV on and watch it. Like it's there. And so out of some kind of bizarre, sick habit, I'm going to just watch the news. Yeah. Okay. And it very rarely is it particularly uplifting. Um, I've gotten so much out of this last weekend where the cable wasn't working. Yeah. And so we watched a couple movies or we just didn't watch anything. But I do, I think, challenge folks over the next few days and weeks going into Thanksgiving and into Christmas, like... How do you turn down the volume on the things that increase your anxiety yeah. and turn up the volume on the things that ground you and yeah. bring you peace and settle you? And- so um, when Catherine was talking earlier, gave us a little hint of her call story. I think it was an abridged version. Um it was interesting to me to hear you talk about the voice of God and I'm interested in how different people hear the voice of God. Like, how do you understand that God is trying to asking you to do something, telling you to do something, giving you discernment? Um, how do you experience that? 
I think it's dangerous. I mean, as you ask the question, it's really easy for me to say, I heard the voice of God and I knew in the pit of my soul that it was, it was a familiar voice mm-hmm. because I'd heard the voice before. Um, I think one of the challenging things is when someone else said, I heard the voice of God and the voice of God told me to buy 44 chain, you know, restaurants and, you know, paint the sky blue and, you know, do something or something really dangerous. I mean, you hear yeah, people who yeah, do yeah. criminal activity because they heard the voice of God. Yeah, but like take your son up to the top of a mountain and put a knife in his belly. Crazy stuff. Crazy so, stuff. Um, when I think about hearing the voice of God, there are a couple things that I think have always been helpful. Um, I spent a little bit of time in what I would call a Methacostal church. Uh, the Methodist <laughs> and Pentecostal. I like that. Have a common roots. And we kinda, you at the UGA Wesley Foundation? Uh, I was not. In the I, early 2000s? But I have a lot of friends who were. Um, but was a part of a, a really small, faithful United Methodist congregation that believed much more in laying on of hands and anointing with oil and speaking tongues and altar calls and really did believe that the spirit was active and alive and working and moving. Um, and one of the things that was really helpful in that environment, though, was understanding that when God speaks, that there are certain things about God, when God speaks, God is faithful to God's self, yeah. that God mm-hmm. always is seeking really forth peace, that God is always seeking forth grace, that God is always bringing forth forgiveness, that God is always bringing up hope, that God is always bringing forth love. And if what you're hearing is counter to scripture, it's counter to kind of some of the traditions and the teachings of the church, you know, if it's counter to like good reason, that it's probably not the voice of God and maybe Mm -hmm. it's just indigestion. Or certainly, certainly deserves a little bit more critical attention than somebody let's do it right i mean right. Cause i do think that god can speak in ways that may go against our interpretation of a tradition or even of scripture right um and so we might be inclined to say no nah, that's not god but when god speaks god creates uh and and there's there's always god's doing something new very often i just uh I I like that understanding. Well, it's the same understanding with scripture. It it is, it is an error to take a single scripture and say that is the intent of God Yeah. without the whole picture painted and everything that surrounds it. That's what informs the scripture. So in the same way, if you are hearing the voice of God, it's going to be compatible with the nature of God. And even in a larger sense than that, it's, it's wrong to take a whole book of the Bible apart from the conversation that is the canon. You know, like there's uh, there's more going on with scripture than simply like, what's this is my favorite verse, let's stick it on the fridge, right? Or make a bumper sticker out of it, or I'm going to now craft my entire life after this one verse. But even to take a whole book, or dare we say testament, and not listen to... Ooh, a whole testament. <laughs> and not listen to the full conversation is, uh, you're going to get yourself in trouble that way, I think. But that's just my opinion. I would also say one of the things that there's nothing probably biblical about this, uh, but the notion <laughs> that... I have very limited encounters with the voice of God. Yeah. In the sense, like, I don't, I'm not crazy, though some people may believe it to be true. I don't constantly hear God telling me to what right. to buy for lunch or which sure. throw pillows to pick out or, you know, right. yeah, what to do next. I mean, I think there's these profound moments that are steeped in, we were talking about earlier today, the importance of discernment and discipline. Yeah. And I think often when you're seeking the voice of God, seeking the spirit moving, whether it's audible or not, that God is not a liar. Yeah. I mean, that God is consistent and reliable. And though God may be doing a new thing, that it's 
God is true to God's, I think, as that's you said good, that's earlier, good, yeah. character. That, that's a good way to say it, yeah. And I think um, that would be my challenge, I think, for those who are particularly anxious is to spend as much time getting to know God's character mm. as you get to know about protocols around safety or that you know about sales on Amazon or the newest yeah. menu item at your favorite restaurant. Like, do we spend as much time on the sources of our joy and our peace and our hope as we do on the things that That's frazzle good. us? That's really good. Probably not. That's really good. I mean, I can get lost on Facebook for hours and learn nothing. Yeah. And leave way more anxious. Like that 45 minutes would have been done a lot better and... You guys want to talk talk a little bit about uh, your disciple class and uh, how that's been going? Oh, you, this is your fourth year. You're doing disciple four now, disciple and four. talk to me a little bit about. Um, I, and let's try to let's try to tie it into the conversation we've been having with uh, dealing with uncertainty and anxiety and holy mystery and all that stuff. How is that class plugged into that process for you guys? Has it helped to alleviate anxiety? Has it given you resources? Has it grown friendships? Talk to me about Disciple and your experience there. It certainly has grown friendships. I think it's been great a, a great way to get with a small group and get to know people, and not just not just for Bible study, but also to get to know people and what's going on in their lives and sharing um, when you hear the voice of God um, and sharing how God is active. Um, and then also, you know, just sharing what the kids are up to and the grandkids and how, how life goes. Just kind of, yeah. Sharing life together. Yeah. In addition to sharing life, I will say it's been really exciting to go deep into scripture um, and not to be surface level. Uh, so in disciple four, we are doing currently the prophetic literature. Um, and then we're going to oh, spend a lot of time on revelation and we're not there yet. So we're not oh, ready for questions. Revelation. But um, the last seven weeks that we've been in, you know, together this time around, we've been talking about people of long ago who are all living in the midst of crisis. I mean, most of those stories we're reading, most of the prophetic literature, uh, God speaks not when things are going well. God speaks when the people need a leader. Yeah. And so God rises up and builds up these, you know, teachers, you know, Ezra and Nehemiah yeah. and uh, Daniel, and they don't show up when like it's hunky-dory and the economy's great and everybody's in worship and you know it's a party they show up when people are in exile and life stinks and yet god still speaks yeah but the people have to listen and it's been really interesting as we've been trying to engage in these books about kind of prophetic literature and wisdom literature to see how these timeless principles still apply today yeah um and we are like, oh, often you're like, oh, it's so bad. We're in a pandemic. And then you read about mm-hmm. what happened to this faithful covenant communion community. And you're like, God called these people and made a covenant with them. And it is bad. Mm-hmm. And yet they're still trying to figure out how to be faithful. Yeah. Oh, we should probably also still be figuring out how to be faithful. Manage that. Yeah. Um, also, Disciple is designed for you to read on a daily basis. Do you, do you do that, Nick? Do you um, read on I have basis? not made it to. Are read you still on making your children basis? read it to you? I, I remember one time you told me you had your kids. There was one point we came across some good stuff, and I was like, "All right, children, let's <laughs> Get, gather around, take a children. Look. Gather take around. a look right here." Um, 
but still having the practice of having 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 a specific assignment to read. Yeah, I, I could remember um, as a teenager being challenged to have a daily devotional, have some kind of a um, you know structured practice, and oftentimes my thought was, yeah, but where do I start? Like, am I just supposed to crack open the Bible just like wherever it falls open and start reading? Like, what's going to be the move here? And so I've loved Disciple for it being a plan. Right. Of, okay, you want to learn more about the Bible? Here's Here's, a plan. Here's a plan. Yeah. I think it's also exciting because um, we learn a lot from each other, particularly as we engage different interpretations of the same text. Yeah. So just different literal translations. Like Nick's coming in with his King James um, you know, and someone else is coming in with the NIV and someone else is in there with a CEB and someone's in there with an NASB. And if these letters don't make sense to you, that's fine. Join a like, disciple group. Join, Join a, a disciple group. group. But we're reading these scripture and we're trying to figure out together because I think so often you're like, oh, I'm supposed to read the Bible and it's supposed to be clear and obvious. Like this should be so simple. And we get in there and we're like, I struggle with oh, this. Yeah. Like this doesn't make sense or this seems to contradict that or like. Is God still being faithful to God's character or why did this happen? And there's a group of people who are like, yeah, I'm stumped too. Or someone who goes like, no, I've I've studied this before and I have some insight or wisdom or I've read this 44 times and I still got something new out of it because I'm in a new Mm -hmm. place. The Bible didn't change. I changed and I needed a new word. So like this dialogue with each other in the room and with the text um, is really comforting. I mean, I would hope people would find disciple... Um, to be a really safe place to question. And yeah. I think that's where we started. Like, yeah. mm-hmm. And when Absolutely. things aren't certain, you think like, oh, the Bible is so obvious. It is not. Well, and that's, a, that's I mean, part of the design of the Bible. We, I, one of those other things that we do on top of making knowledge about uh, intellectual stuff is we think that the Bible is something that you can read alone and get full value from. And when the Bible was written for communities to be read out loud, and it's supposed to be part of an ongoing conversation, an ongoing uh, conversion of a people over the, over the course of centuries. And, and it does invite questions. It invites God. You're never going to offend God with a question, right? You're never going to offend God with a question. You may offend God with what you do with that question, how you answer that question. But God can take, God can take quite a bit. He's, he's you know. Um, God, God has certainly handled more than our questions. There are things yeah. like systemic injustices and genocide. Yeah, yeah. So I think the question is probably the least of God's. Actually, I think probably God's excitement. I, I now that I get to kind of function in that role of parent, when a child comes to you with a sincere question, uh-huh. how excited you are that they're at a place that they're ready to wrestle with yeah. something new. Right. They're thinking about it. I mean, and the fact that they trust you to like give them wisdom and guidance and. Um, discernment like you're like I would never turn away a genuine question now if you're being annoying and snot nosed and like whiny that might be another issue but I think the other thing disciple does that is um, certainly helpful to me if you you have a sense of intimidation about reading the Bible because you feel like it doesn't make sense or that there's not enough you don't understand enough about what life was like in the Bible, yeah, the the disciple program gives some color to that, some context, yeah, fills in some blanks for you, right? So it it helps make thing helps things make sense, yeah, yeah, that's important.
think as we do come to an end, I would say um, if you are dealing with anxiety that is overwhelming, you are normal. You are perceiving the cues of the world correctly. There's a lot of reasons to be anxious. Uh, But I would like kind of dip into this like tool chest of like resources. But I also want to give kind of a quick plug. If the things that you've done in the past aren't working, like you've prayed and you've read scripture and you've worshiped and you've safely reached out to community and you've exercised and you've gotten in touch with nature and you've taken four deep breaths and you've turned off the news and you no longer have a social media or you did only a few of those and it's still overwhelming to seek professional help. Absolutely. It, it is okay. And I think that's one of the things that scripture says over and over again. It is okay to ask for help um, from medical professionals and psychiatrists and psychologists. Like this is not easy. Yeah. Um, and there is no shame in getting getting the help you need Absolutely. so you recon- so you can reconnect to the hope that's already there so you can embrace the mystery with joy and wonder and yeah. excitement with a little childlike faith versus feeling like you are sinking and doubt and Absolutely. despair and if there's anything that we can do in our side church to help you with that um give us a shout out call our clergy call call us i mean we uh that's the whole role of the church is to be here uh, particularly in times like this so anything that we can do to help well, I think Nick said it really well earlier. Our needs in life are not just financial. Yeah. Our needs are spiritual and relational and communal and, um, you know, mental. I mean, they're like, we all have needs. Yeah. Um, and to be a place where you can show up, whatever your needs are, that's what we're trying to do. Absolutely. And sometimes we do it really well and sometimes we miss the mark, but it doesn't mean that we're not. Uh, still trying. The church is for broken people. And I have found that sometimes I don't have the resources to help with a particular need but i know somebody who does yeah yeah once again one of the reasons why i love bringing it all back to the beginning why i love being at northside because we are a really um really talented multifaceted faceted really incredible team um where none of us have to be experts at everything we can all kind of be in it together and that's what community is so grateful to be a part of this community and this conversation Catherine, thank you so much for joining us today nick you got anything y'all want pecans let me know i got like 60 pounds <laughs> all right if you need some pecans uh give nick houston a call uh Catherine, thanks again for joining us and uh, we'll see you later Northside. bye-bye